The loudest. The biggest. The brashest. New York is its own character in every play. The bad thing about New York is the pressure. You're always under pressure. Here are the stories about those plays. It's New York Accent with Damon Amendolaro. We turn and go the other way. Now that door's open and the one behind me's closed. So I told Phil Sims, you never ever threw into the wind in the Meadowland. He said, oh, Joe, just don't give it up, Joe. Pass it on, Joe. Let it go. Get all that drink stuff, you know. I hated the, I absolutely, the worst stadium to play it in the world. Around here, Joe Theismann is best known for being the quarterback who lined up against the Giants' ferocious defenses of the 80s and was on the ugly end of one of the ugliest plays in NFL history as Giants fans watched Monday Night Football. But he's actually a New Jersey guy who grew up around Giants fans and became a diehard Jets guy because of Joe Namath. Yes, Theismann is even in the New Jersey Hall of Fame. He became a star at Notre Dame, then won a Super Bowl in Washington in 1982, and helped lead Washington back to the big game the following season with one of the greatest offenses ever. But by 85, it was over, as Lawrence Taylor snapped his leg in front of a nationally televised audience. Here's Theismann on that moment in time, LT's bond with him that's still strong to this day, Meeting Broadway Joe and playing in the wind tunnel known as Giant Stadium. This is Joe Theismann's New York accent. Joe, how are you? I'm good, DA. It's great to catch up with you. Thank you. You too. And growing up, South River, New Jersey, kind of central New Jersey, about 20 minutes away from Rutgers or so. Yeah. That's in between New York and Philly territory. That's on that border. And so your friends, your family, your your neighbors are they New York fans or are they Philly fans? They were New York fans. I mean, we were closer to New York City. Uh, you know, I was a big Jet fan growing up. First, it was a Giant fan. Then the Jets came into being, and then I became a big Joe Namath fan um, and a Jet fan. Never really, never really got really into the Philadelphia Eagles. That was too far south for us a little bit. That's exit four. We're at exit nine off the turnpike. I don't refer to the parkway. I refer to the turnpike. So nice. well, that's how I did growing up. But uh, yeah, we were we were New York fans. So growing up as a Jets fan, are you a Jets fan because of Joe Namath, or did you get into them even before that? No, I was a Jet fan because of Joe Namath. And and you know, one I, I had to tell you a funny story. So in 1974, like growing up, I, Joe was my idol, man. I I went to a drugstore, bought a rug, bathroom rug that became a llama skin rug. I used to walk around <laughs> hitting my chest. You know, when he broke his jaw, I changed my face mask in high school. I mean, I, I really, I was totally obsessed with Joe. And as time would have it, uh, and we really have become great friends uh, over the years, but in 1974, uh, as a backup quarterback with Washington, we're playing the Jets at Shea. And there he is on the other side of the field, my idol. Joe Namath's over there. I've, I'm in my uniform. Game ends. I go running across the field. I, I couldn't get there quick enough. Shook his head. Hey, Mr. Namath, Joe Theismann. See, I know who you are. I said, sir, do you want me to carry your helmet to your locker room for you? And uh, I'm in my uniform. And I just was, you know, I was just so, I was I was a fanboy. I, what can I tell you? That's, I really was. I just, I thought, that, and I still think of the world of Joe. I, we're dear friends now. We played golf together. Um, and I just think the world of him. Did he let you carry his Jets helmet to the locker room? No, Washington <laughs> uniform? <laughs> He told me, no, that's okay, son. Don't worry about it. <laughs> so that's interesting. He said, I know who you are, and you were just a young guy in the league, but he was aware of you. 
Yeah, well, yeah, I, I guess the Notre Dame reputation sort of preceded uh, a little bit of what I did in the NFL. Of course, spent my three years up in Toronto, which I absolutely loved. But yeah, Joe had an idea who I was. When you go to college to Notre Dame and your original pronunciation of your name is Theisman and they want to change it to Theisman to rhyme with Heisman for a Heisman campaign, were you resistant to that at all? Or do you think that was a good idea? No, you know, I didn't. I didn't. I wasn't resistant to it. And um, I didn't really equate whether it was a good idea or a bad idea. You know, Roger Valdeseri, our PR guy who we lost just a few years ago, dear, dear man, genius when he came to marketing for the university, called me in the office. He said, Joe, how do you pronounce your last name? I said, it's these. He said, no, son, it's pronounced thighs. I said, no, it's <laughs> He said, no, Joe, your last name is thighs. Because I had a really good junior year. I didn't know what he was going to do. So I asked him for the phone. I called my dad back home in Jersey. You know, I got my dad on the phone to say, Dad, I got a question. He says, fire away, Joe. I said, hey, Dad, how do you pronounce our last name? And there's like dead silence on the phone. <laughs> and my dad comes up. He says, son, are you all right? I mean, you're a senior in college. What's going on? I said, I'll explain it later. And I said, how do we pronounce our last name? He said, Thiesman. Hung the phone up, turned to Roger. I said, Rog, my last name is Thiesman. Just got on my dad. He says, Joe, I want to tell you, said, there's a trophy out there called the Heisman Trophy. He goes, best college football player in the country. We think you have a chance to win that. We're not just going to count on your athletic ability nor the reputation of the University of Notre Dame. We think by just simply changing the pronunciation of your last name from Thiesman to Thiesman to Ryan with Thiesman, we can get you that trophy. And uh, that's how I became Joe Thiesman. It's so interesting. When, when I was in college, my last name, Amendolara, the program director who was an adult at a student radio station said, that is not going to work in broadcasting. What do you want to change it to? I said, I don't know. I didn't really think about that. And when I got to my first job, they said, that's not going to work. It's too long. It's Italian. It's too long. People can't pronounce it. I said, I don't know what I want to change it to. And I was really worried that if I changed it, my family would be disappointed in me. Yeah. So I always kept it, although now I just go by DA. Was there any part of you that was worried that your family, your dad, would be disappointed that they changed the, the pronunciation? Well, it wasn't so much my dad. My grandmother was the matriarch of our family, and she had come over from Germany. And you know, we were Thiesmans. That's who, who we were. Uh, even when I go back home today, it's, hey, Joey Thiesman. Well, wow. I mean, I, you know, back home, you're still whatever you were. I'm true. Sure that way, too. When you yeah, true. Yeah. But my grandmother, so I called my grandmother. I said, Granny, they want to change the pronunciation of our last name. She goes, well, I tell you this. She says, uh, I, and I explained to her, they want to go from Thiesman to Thiesman. She says, well, you know that the correct pronunciation is Thiesman. And actually, what they want to do is closer than what we have now. Oh. So I got my grandmother's blessing. And so that worked out. out. So we stayed. Very cool. Yeah. So- while you're known for your Washington exploits, you're in the New Jersey Hall of Fame. You were a member of the 2011 Hall of Fame, and that included Tony Bennett, Queen Latifah, yep. John Travolta, Bruce Willis, and Franco Harris. And so growing up in Jersey, now being part of the State Hall of Fame with not just athletic achievements and and stars, but entertainment and history, et cetera, how's that feel? It's a great honor. When, you know, when you're honored at home, I think that's what's so special. Uh, so many honors I've received over the years, and I appreciate every one of them, and I'm thankful for the people that considered me for those. But to be honored at the New Jersey Hall of Fame, to be part of that group, I mean, you, you look look at the names. I mean, I watch Queen Latifah today. You know, I watch her in The Equalizer. I, I just think, you know, I mean, uh, Tony Bennett, you know, iconic. Tony's been singing with people for 100 years, it seems like anyway. I mean, and yeah. You know, of course, we lost Franco, and, and Bruce has just put on movie after movie. And and so to me, it was an incredible honor to be included in that group of people. 
and and really what it represents to me is and because of the company that we are in in that group it's not just the world of athletics and that's what makes it special it's it's from people from all walks of life from different genre when it came to entertainment and so it's it's really a great honor when you leave Notre Dame, you have a choice to at either go to the NFL, you were drafted by the Dolphins in the fourth round, or you have an offer from the Canadian Football League. Was it difficult for you to make that decision to not go to, obviously, the league that you grew up watching and idolizing, the NFL? It was. It, it, it was difficult, except I made a big mistake. And I, I know, you know, everybody... Everybody tries to do things themselves. I have, you know, graduated from the University of Notre Dame, felt like I could handle my negotiations. Uh, Joe Thomas, who was the general manager of the Miami Dolphins at that time, was having open heart surgery. So I negotiated my contract with Joe Robbie, walked into his office, sat down, and he said to me, what would you like? And I, and being, I learned my first lesson in negotiations, you never quote a price, but I did. Um, I said, I want $35,000, and $55,000. I want a $35,000 signing bonus which today sounds like interest on a day for Aaron <laughs> Rodgers, to be honest with you. But uh, so, and, and he said, you got it. And so, you know, I go, hey, come heck or high water, I'll be a Miami Dolphin. And all of a sudden, there was a clause in there that said that if I didn't show up for any of those three years, I'd have to pay back my bonus. And I just became disillusioned with the process. So I called the Toronto Argonauts and Leo Cahill, and I said, is your offer still on the table? It was 50-50-50-50. He said, fly up here to Toronto, We'll meet. I flew up. They said, if you leave the country, it's off the table. I signed the contract. And then uh, I get back to South Bend and Eric Parsegian, who was my consultant, whom I never consulted, calls me at 6 a.m. He says, what in heaven's name have you done? I said, I signed with the Argonauts. He said, I know. I just got off the phone with Shuley. He's hopping mad and he's on his way up here now. Don flew up to South Bend and absolutely tore me a new one. Wow. You have a moral obligation to be a Miami Dolphin. Well, you had a moral obligation not to screw with my contract. I didn't understand the process. They ultimately had changed it, but, you know, that was water under the bridge. I mean, you look at look at 71, 72, and 73 of the Miami Dolphins. Super Bowls. Yep. I mean, it, it was, and, and, and interestingly enough, uh, when I didn't go there, Don went and got Earl Morrill. And, and, I, and I say this to every Miami Dolphin fan out there. If it hadn't been for me, the Dolphins wouldn't have had my Earl Morrill. <laughs> if it hadn't been for me, Earl Morrill would not have won nine of those games in that undefeated season. So to everyone, every person out there that's a Miami Dolphin fan, you're welcome. So it is such an interesting time because Bob Greasy is the starter. I don't know if you would have supplanted him. It's a run-based yeah. offense, so it's Zonka and Kick and Mercury Morris. It's the no-name defense. They're a great elite all-time team, the 72 teams undefeated, perhaps the greatest team of all time. What, do you think you would have played aside from when Greasy was injured, and is that a what-if in your career? No, I'm, a, I'm not a DA. I am not a uh, rearview mirror guy. I'm a windshield guy. I can't control what's behind me. I can't change it, so I don't like to think about it. We've all done things. We look back and reflect on them and learn a lesson from them. But as far as going forward goes, let me look through the windshield and see what's out in front of me. I just, I had a great run up in Toronto. I love living in Toronto. We went to a great cup my first year. We went to the championship my first year, my rookie season. Then I got, I only broke one bone the second year in my leg instead of all of them, like I did. <laughs> but, you know, the irony of Shula and I is just incredible. Obviously, I don't go to Miami. So and that's in, that's 71. 82, who do we play in the Super Bowl? Mm. The Miami Dolphins. Dolphins, yeah. We beat them. 
Then, see, I don't think a lot of people realize this. I replaced O.J. Simpson in the booth with Frank Gifford and Don Meredith. Oh, right. Super Bowl 19. Who's playing in that game? The Miami Dolphins right. and the San Francisco 49ers in Palo Alto, California. I see Shula again. This is the third time Shula sees me, okay? No good things have happened <laughs> those times that he's seen me. So it wasn't an endearing uh, period of time for us. Either one, but, you know, as years have gone by, I just respect him so much. People ask me about regrets. Like I say, I have, I have very few regrets. You live your life and, you know, whatever it is, it is. But I really I really think I would have loved to have played for Coach Shula because he was tough and I needed someone tough. Mm. I, I needed, you know, you needed that guy who was who would, who would ride you. Uh, anybody that's ever given me gruff, I've just sort of raised to the occasion and said, okay, I'll prove to you that I can be worthy of it. It's like when I went to Notre Dame. I was one of 13 quarterbacks, 5 feet 10, 152 pounds. Wrote down on a piece of paper, said I'll be the greatest quarterback that ever played. After my first freshman practice, I wrote down on a piece of paper, I'll be the greatest quarterback that ever played at Notre Dame. It didn't matter. It's it's just what you believe you can accomplish. You know, it's you have to believe in who you are. You have to believe in what you you can do or else you never get a chance to go forward in life. Also feels like maybe a jersey trait as well. Kind yeah, of this mental absolutely. mental absolutely. toughness. I can take on anything. You can't tell me what to do. That definitely feels very jersey. Yeah, drinking that drinking that jersey water, Ricks, makes you that way. I gotta be <laughs> honest with you. It'll do one of two things. It'll make you tough or give you the runs. I'm not sure exactly which way it works out, but that's exactly what happened. <laughs> so you end up in Washington and you become the starter in '78. And this is right around the time when the Giants are starting to ascend. They were terrible throughout the 70s. And then LT comes along in the early 80s. They start piecing things together. Harry Carson, George Martin are there as well. And in the division, you guys start having some really epic, epic battles across the entire of the division. Tell me what you remember from the early days of the 80s when Lawrence Taylor enters this, this battleground between you guys and the Giants. Phenomenal football player. Phenomenal athlete, uh, quick, fast, strong, instinctive. Yeah, you know, I get a kick out of people coming and saying, "Well, you know, they talk about this this linebacker. He's the next Lawrence Taylor." No, there isn't another one. There's only one. There's the next Michael Jordan. No, there's only one. Uh, so you know, you look at these comparisons and that old giant team. We played. You better buckle up your chin strap really, really tight because it was going to be a slugfest. You know, the Cowboys were sort of the, the the fancy guys. They had they posed the wide receivers, put their hands on their hips and put their legs up. And, they, you know, they looked fancy and everything. And they were finesse sort of. Well, when it came to the Giants, you better, like I say, you better bring a bat because it's going to be a war. And that's really what it was for us. It was a and I hated the Meadowlands. The Meadowlands had an 18 inch crown. My wide receivers were five foot eight. Theoretically, I was throwing the four foot receivers. <laughs> I mean, when you really look at it. Now, here's another thing. And Sims gives me a bunch of grief about this, but this is a true story. In the old Meadowlands, they used to have gated uh, doors at either end of the stadium. Big, huge doors. So what they would do is they would open them. Obviously, the Meadowlands was always windy. It was a tough place to play anyway. So I'd be up under center, and I'd look out, and I'd see that door open. I'd turn around behind me, and the door was closed. The big gated door was closed. I'm thinking, Shoot, man, I can't wait till we turn and, and go the other way. We turn and go the other way. Now that door's open and the one behind me's closed. So I told Phil Sims, you never, ever threw into the wind in the Meadowlands. He said, oh, Joe, 
just don't give it up, Joe. Pass it on, Joe. Let it go. Get all that grit from them, you know. <laughs> oh, yeah, that was – I hated the – I absolutely – the worst stadium to play at in the world. I think that also, stupid Dallas Cowboys stadium with a hole in the roof. Who builds a stadium with a hole in the roof? I think I've also heard you say that the crowd of the Meadowlands, the stands were closer to the oh, yeah. to the bench than any other stadium you had played in. So you really felt the fans right behind you. They were li- they were literally, uh, I'd say, twenty feet behind us. I mean, you were right there. You walk around like I go get a drink. I had my little routine when I came off the field, and you know, I I I. <laughs> I'd come off the field, I'd uh, grab a cup of water, take a sip, spit it out, crush the cup, throw it in the garbage can, go sit down, put a towel on my right knee. So, you know, in the in the Meadowlands, so I, I'm in my routine. Every, fans know they study players. Just like we study players, fans study players. So all of a sudden, I, I walk behind and go, oh, look it, he's picking up the cup. Oh, look, he's taking the sip. Oh, look, he's crushed the cup. Oh, yes, yes, he's got it in the garbage can. Yeah, he finally hit somebody. It's like they're just riding my rear end all the way, you know. It, it was, uh, it's the experience. You know, it, it's those are the things you miss about the game. People ask me, do you ever miss football? Yeah, there's things about it that I miss. I used to love training camp. I used to love practice. Heck, we, we had six preseason games, D.A. That's amazing. It's six. We played 14 games, amazing. played six preseason games. None of the starters will play in these three preseason games now. Nope. When you watch the NFL today, the first two or three games of the regular season are glorified preseason games. Guys need to get into shape. Guys need to know what's going on. Why do you see so many fumbles in the first three or four weeks? They're not used to getting hit. And they're not practicing during the no, summer either. Guys have the ball. Nope. They're not, I know. They don't, they're not given the opportunity to practice that way anymore. You had won the Super Bowl in 82. You guys had an elite team at 83. One of the best teams never to win a championship. Got to the Super Bowl, lost to the Raiders. In 85, you're still trucking along, and the hit from LT happens, and you break your leg. I actually saw, and I was surprised to see, both you guys having signed photographs of that. Did you ever resist signing a picture of you ending your career? Initially, I did. Initially, I did. I didn't... uh... You know, that memory is very vivid in my mind. But then I thought, you know, what the heck? We were always going to be connected together anyway. Uh, Matter of fact, there's there's two stories I'll tell you about LT. Um, well, I'll, I'll probably see him this weekend at a, a card show uh, here in Chantilly, Virginia. Um, so my leg gets broken on Monday night. You know, people come up and say all the time, by the way, they say, no, Joe, we're really sorry you broke your leg. I said, I didn't break my leg. Lawrence Taylor broke my leg. I said, you know, let's qualify that. And so Tuesday morning, nurse comes walking in. She says, Mr. Thives, Mr. Taylor's on the phone. Would you like to speak to him? I said, yeah. Hello, give me the phone. LT, is that you? He says, yeah, Joe, how you doing? I said, not very well. And he says, why? I said, why? You broke both bones of my leg for crying out loud. He says, Joe, I don't do things halfway. Got to go to practice. Talk to you later. Goodbye. So he hangs up the phone. So now he's got this, now he's got this bar up off of Route 3 in Jersey, and he invites me up. This is about four years after uh, the injury. And um, we're sitting there, and you know how they had, used to have those guys where players would come and sort of rehash the game and things. So we're sitting there. They play the injury behind us, and neither one of us look at it. So I turned to him. I said, LT, you know, you and I are always going to be connected through this injury. We know how it affected my life. It ended my career. How did it affect yours? He said, Joe, I learned a great lesson that night. No matter how great you are at what you do, it can be over in an instant. And you better live life to the fullest, and you'll be able to get the most out of it. You better not, if you're on a football field, don't leave anything in the tank. 
And and interestingly enough, that next year he became Defensive Player of the Year. So I, I mean, uh, you know, I don't take any responsibility for it, but I thought it was very prophetic when he talked about, you know, the the fact that this game could be over like it was for me, and it is. You, you snap your fingers and it's over. Um, and that's why you really, you know, I, I see guys, you know, I see guys doing stupid things, throwing away, just throwing away money, getting suspended, doing stupids. I think, man, you know, what my fav- one of my favorite sayings, DA, is this, you just can't fix stupid. I can make you bigger. I can make you stronger. I can make you faster. But by golly, I just, you just can't fix stupid. And sometimes I see these guys throwing literally millions of dollars away. I'm thinking, <clears throat> Do you know how hard it is to be able to do that in this world? And, and we are in such a privileged position to be able to play the game. It, it's a it's a privilege to be able to put on a uniform and play the game you loved as a kid growing up and to play for a team that ca- that really that you have a chance to be successful with. Uh, instead, some of these guys look at it like it's a right. Then uh, you put that uniform on, you 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 count your lucky stars that you can continue to do it. That scene is such a memorable one because we think of Lawrence Taylor as indestructible, a savage on the field. He took no prisoners, just laid waste to to offenses. And yet when he tackles you, lands on your leg, it snaps the wrong way. He he puts both of his hands on his helmet and is almost like, oh, my God, what have I done? Calling over the, the stretcher and the medics, come, come get Joe, come get Joe. So we see this moment where he's very shaken and vulnerable. Have you ever talked to him about what that was like? Because we saw it unfold in real time. Oh, yeah. Uh, matter of fact, uh, the NFL did a football life on me a couple of months ago. And in it, both he and I, uh, he came into town and we walked through RFK Stadium. We went to the old stadium and walked through. And by the way, we play golf together, but I won't let him stand where I can't see him. <laughs> he has to be in my vision at all times. And I tell him this. I said, hey, I love playing with you, man, but you are not going to be someplace where I don't see you. Okay, but no, we had a chance to walk through. As a matter of fact, uh, one other person that's very prominent in that particular show is Drew Pearson, who was my wide receiver in high school. We went back to my high school. Wow! And D, uh, DP and I walked around, and like just like LT came uh, to Washington. I appreciate both of them so much for taking the time to do it to make it a very special, a special memory for me. I mean, the NFL does such a fabulous job with the football lives, and I was just flattered and honored to have the opportunity to be able to have them do one on me. Emotionally, how were you when you recognized that's the last play of my career? You've oftentimes said Monday Night Football 1985 on the starting quarterback in Washington. Tuesday morning, I don't have a career anymore. That must yep. have been really h- tough mentally. It, it was. It, the, the most difficult part was the mental part. The rehabilitation takes care of itself. Alex Smith and I have talked about this. I mean, the rehabilitation is something you just throw yourself into because that's who we are. But the mental part of it, all of a sudden, it's gone. And what, and what exacerbated it, DA, was the fact that I think about three weeks after I got out of the hospital, I went to Redskin Park, and I walked up to my locker. Now, that's 12 years of my life. I mean, that's that's my other little home. I've got chin straps that have blood on it. I've got gifts that people have given me, things I've picked up, little knickknacks that become yours. That's, that's your world. Steve Barkowski sitting in my locker. Former Atlanta Falcon, he's now he's now in my locker. My entire twelve year career is in a box in the equipment room for me to pick up. Mm. That's that's the nature of this business. 
it's a tough, tough, tough business. And, uh, you know, football doesn't love you, but you better love it. Hmm. Wow. That's really, that's quite powerful. You are part of the American Century Championship at Edgewood Tahoe Golf Course in South Lake Tahoe coming up on July 14th, 15th, and 16th. There are so many cool former athletes and celebrities playing in this from all walks, baseball, football, basketball, all over the place. And fans can watch it on TV. They can go and show up. The, the galleries are amazing. This is always a pretty cool event. Every athlete that plays it, it just gets such a kick out of meeting all the other former athletes and, and getting to play this course. You're right. You're right. Well, what else is interesting now is we've created a fantasy golf, and you can go to www.accfantasygolf.com, check out all the rules. Uh, you get We're broken down into five groups based upon your ability to play. I'm in group three, so I feel pretty good about that. I'm in the middle. All right. Nice. But you can pick a player from each group every day. And the ultimate winner, whoever winds up winning over the, the course of the tournament, which is Friday, Saturday, Sunday, 14th through 16th, they are given the opportunity to have 10000 It's a $10,000 win that goes to the charity of their choice. Plus, they get a trip for two to next year's tournament. And each day you win, you get a trip for two to next year's tournament. It's the 25th year that American Century has been the title sponsor, and they've just been so wonderful. Uh, actually, June 22nd is when it starts. You can compete up until June, July 13th, right before the tournament starts. You can do it. And it's, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's uh, Catherine Tappan's playing in it. I always, I always like to get next to Annika. She plays in it, right? So when she's on the range, I want to just see if there's something I can pick up that'll help me with my game because she's just phenomenal. And the group that I'm actually in is like, you know, Josh Allen, Josh Allen, Patrick Mahomes, Roger Clemens. Yeah. A bunch of them. And then, of course, Larry the Cable Guy is going to be there. Charles Barkley will always be entertaining. Um, you know, Justin Timberlake, uh, Jack Wagner. What's great about it, DA, is it's not just athletes. It's people from every walk of entertainment, whether it's music, uh, theater, art, uh, TV, um, movies. You know, it's just, to me, it's, it's just a wonderful day to get to know and learn about people. Every one of them are so great. You know, Jerry Rice, the greatest receiver in the history of football, is always there. Uh, and I, I sort of like the – Jerry you know, I have, a, I think, a similar game, and I'm always curious to see how I match up against it. It seems like all my life I've been trying to validate my skinny little self to see if I can be good enough to as some of these other guys are. But uh, the days of reaching the par fives are over, and now I'm just trying to become a really good wedge player and putter. July 14th, 15th, 16th in Lake Tahoe. You can go and attend, but also you can watch at NBC and the Golf Channel. And as, as Joe just mentioned, accfantasygolf.com because there's a really cool fantasy golf portion of this as well with stars from all across many different uh, disciplines and sports and et cetera. So that's accfantasygolf.com. Hey, Joe, this was awesome. I always love our conversation, but this one specifically was fun because we got to go back in the time machine and get all those awesome stories. So thanks so much for doing it and hit them straight coming up in Lake Tahoe. DA, thanks for having me, man. I really enjoy visiting with you all the time. Let's do it again. Appreciate Joe Theismann's time here on New York Accent. And Joe's a great storyteller, so you knew that conversation would be really good. But I really love the insight into playing those Giants defenses of the 80s the night Monday night football where he snapped his leg and hearing the taunts of Giants fans from just a couple of rows back as he's sitting on the sideline of the old Giants stadium, the old Meadowlands, that is 
that's great. And it's pretty interesting because Theismann's kind of known as the enemy for Giants fans, having played for all those really good Washington teams in the early 80s and mid-80s. And yet here he is as a Jersey guy, the Jersey Hall of Fame. So that was a lot of fun. And it got me thinking about a couple of what-ifs. You know, I asked Joe there about what if he signed with the Dolphins? What would those early 70s Dolphins teams have done? Bob Greasy was the starter, but if Joe Theismann was there, when he goes down in 72, instead of Earl Morrill stepping in, as Joe just mentioned, was it going to be Joe Theismann as part of the 72 Dolphins? And then beyond that, you look at the NFC East, and Washington really hit stride in 1982 under Joe Gibbs and Theismann running the offense, which is when they won the Super Bowl, and John Riggins was the engine, the diesel, that nobody could stop. Washington wins the NFC East in 82, 83, and 84. In 85, the Cowboys come back and win the division, and then 86 is when the Giants begin their run. The Giants win the Super Bowl in 86, going 14-2. and Washington then comes back and wins it in 87. The Eagles win in 88. And then the Giants win again in 89 and 90 before Washington gets it in 91. That's all before the Cowboys dynasty begins in 1992. And so if Theismann never breaks his leg on Monday Night Football in 85, he's probably the starting quarterback at 86 and maybe beyond. Now, maybe Jay Schrader does ultimately supplant him. But, and Theismann was getting up there in age, but it's interesting to think about because. He doesn't play the 86 Giants, which is the best edition of the Giants, I think, ever. 14-2, and two, the number one seed, crushed everybody in the playoffs, and then win the Super Bowl over the Broncos. So he doesn't face that Giants team. 87 is when Washington does win the division again in the strike-shortened year, but Doug Williams ultimately is the quarterback in the Super Bowl and the playoffs. Would Theismann have still been sticking around for 87 when they win the Super Bowl again? He's certainly not around in 91 when Mark Rippon is there, but Gibbs is known as this incredible offensive mastermind who could win the Super Bowl with three different quarterbacks. If Theismann isn't snapped in half by LT, is it possible three of Gibbs's four Super Bowl appearances all happened with Joe Theismann? And if so, let's just say Theismann won the Super Bowl in 87 with this team. Is he remembered differently? You know, instead of an interchangeable piece because Gibbs won it with so many different guys. That's really interesting to me. And the 83 team for Washington is really known as one of the great teams never to win. They were a thoroughly dominant regular season team, setting all types of offensive records for points scored, et cetera. And then they they fall in the Super Bowl to the Raiders 38-9, to I believe. And... It's kind of a poof, all the air comes out of the balloon. But if Theismann has two rings and one of the greatest seasons ever by an offense, again, he might be remembered differently. Now, Joe had a great career. Obviously, he's very thankful for that. And he ends up with a great broadcasting career as well. And he's forever a Washington legend. But he's a couple of what-ifs away from like three or four championships. Because even if he's a backup in 72 and 73, he'd have backup rings with the Dolphins to Bob Greasy. And then he's a game or a, a play away from maybe multiple rings in Washington. So a super interesting career that Joe Theismann had. And um, I really I enjoyed that conversation quite a bit. And 
He's joined me on the show in the past. You know, I do the, the morning show on CBS Sports Radio. And he joined me last spring, right before Washington changed his name to the Commanders. And nobody knew what they were going to change it to. And he joined us, and he seemed to let it slip that it was going to be Commanders. And he said something along the lines of, I think Washington fans are really going to like the Commanders. I think they're real." And we didn't know if he was letting the cat out of the bag inadvertently, if he knew something, or he was just kind of guessing. And he said afterwards that he didn't really know, but it ended up being the Commanders, and we kind of... Didn't realize at the time, but we had broken the news on the DA show that Washington was changing its nickname to the Commanders. So that is this episode of New York Accent. You can always email the show as well, remember. nyaccentpod at gmail.com. That's nyaccentpod at gmail.com. Or on Twitter, you can get at me, DA on CBS. Or on Instagram, my DMs are always open. You can follow me there, at Damon Amendo. I want to thank Bryce Gelman, the executive producer of New York Accent. You can get this all places that you get your podcasts and on YouTube as well. Go to YouTube and go to the WFAN page. and You can see all of our conversations with all these New York-based athletes. Either they played here or grew up here or had some epic clashes against teams from here. Available on YouTube on the WFAN page. Just search New York Accent as well. All right, we'll see you next week for another edition of New York Accent. I'm DA Damon Amendolara, and this is an Odyssey original series.